Yeah. Um, oh, but anyway, I hope uh, your forum was, was, was nice. And uh, again, it, uh, it's also a sad day today that uh, I don't know if you know of Rav Chaim Kanievsky, a uh, very, very great man. Uh, he was 94, and uh, as is always the case, um, no, it's not that, you know, it's so tragic to die at 94. I mean, uh, he, he was Zoha to Arichus Yomim. But it's really uh, the loss of us, you know, uh, when, a, when a great person, a great tzaddik is in the world, he protects the world, he protects Am Yisrael, he brings Hashem's blessing into the world. And uh, when that tzaddik goes, we're all vulnerable, we're all weaker, we all have less defenses. So really, we're not crying over him. I care, it's an olam haba, <laughs> everything is good. We're crying over us, that we've lost a protector, we've lost someone that... Uh, was Megan Al Hador protected uh, the generation? So it's a very sad thing. I uh, I was debating whether to go. I, I, I decided not to because uh, what would happen anyway is um, I would probably be several miles from the Levaya and watch it on a screen. I could watch it on a screen here. You know, I'm not, I'm not sure if it's an Indian to, to go to Bnei Brak to watch it on a screen from a distance. Uh, but uh, again, he was a very great, a very very great, uh, great person. And uh, Klal Yisrael is very much impoverished. You know, one way of looking at it is, I'm going to make up a, a number, just a, just a ridiculous number. Let's imagine that a given tzaddik puts in 10 billion tons of Kedusha in the world. So when the tzaddik leaves, there's 10 billion tons of Kedusha that's no longer here. It's a big vacuum, a big emptiness. So what do we have to do? We have to try to fill up the emptiness. Now, none, none of us could put in just making up numbers, 10 billion units of Kedusha. But we do a little bit. We each, each does a little bit more. So if enough people do a little bit more, maybe on some level. I mean, the same thing was true with the Rebbe's Petira. This is what it is. When a tzaddik leaves the world, we have to step up. We have to be mashlam. We have to try. And of course we're not going to be mashlam, but we have to try to do something, as it were. And that's the greatest message we can take uh, from the death of, of Sadiqim. So everyone has to uh, uh, resolve to do a little bit more in serving Hashem, in doing mitzvahs and Avas Yisrael, all of these different, all of these different uh, inyanim. You know, it's interesting, I, uh, Konevsky's father was also a great Rabbiagli, uh, uh, called the Stipler, from Hornestipler, which happened to be in the Ukraine. And I was Zoha to meet uh, the stipler once. And it was interesting, the stipler was, was pretty deaf. He didn't hear, so you had to communicate by writing something. I mean, he heard, but he didn't hear very well. So because he didn't hear, he spoke very loudly. So you sometimes, it was very scary. You thought he was yelling at you. Because he'd really be talking loud, because if you don't hear, you can talk loud. So I remember I came in, it was like, um, it was like 12 o'clock at night, midnight, and he was, he was like sleepy, he was like uh, drowsing off. He had, he had a table with, full of svarim and full of kvitlach. People would write messages to her, brachos, whatever it would be. So all of a sudden, he wakes up with a start. And all of a sudden, he starts yelling at me. I, I was like uh, maybe 18 or something. He starts yelling at me. He, he, he wasn't yelling. He says, says, why do people come to me? He's asking me a question. Why do people come to me? I'm an old man. I'm going to die soon. They should, they should pray to Hashem. Why do they come to me? I, what can I do? I, Says I'm not a tzaddik. I can't. I can't do things. Why do people come to me? And you know he's saying it like really loud. Like, 
like he's asking me a question, and I hand him my, my thing. Oh, man, no. <laughs> Here's my thing. <laughs> yeah. But it was very, uh, it was very scary. But Rosh Hashem, he did, he did answer. You know, so that was my one, one encounter with the cyclone. Did you have any encounters with Rebbe? So with Rebbe was different. Rebbe Kinevsky already had like hundreds and hundreds of people. You know, if you wanted to see him, you only get like one minute. So we used to bring Or Sameach Talmidim to Bnei Brak to meet him. And they would walk by and, you know, he, he would give them a bracha. He would uh, to encourage them. He would uh, talk to them and the like. Uh, so once I took two groups in. I took like one group then I took another group. So he said, weren't you here already? You know, I go, not, not supposed to go too many times, or whatever. Um, but I'll tell you, the truth is, Bateva, Bateva, he was a very, very kind person, but uh, just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. I mean, the fact that the Rebbe did it was Lumailum and Ateva. That was very unusual. And even the Rebbe, you know, the Rebbe stopped having uh, long yechidas. He was giving out dollars. I mean, really, because what, what can I, you know, I mean, only Hashem could see, you know, millions of people uh, at, at once. You know, so at some point, uh, even the greatest, greatest people do have some, some human limitation. So that was the, uh, that was the situation. So uh, it was not so good to see him alive. But, uh, but it was, uh, you know, we, we, uh, but what's interesting is he, you know, he never, he never was a, a Rosh Hashiva. He never was a, a teacher. He taught primarily by answering questions and by writing svarim. And he, he gave a story that he was only a, a, a sheer teacher, a classroom teacher, only once. Uh, but he couldn't discipline. He was teaching high school kids. And he couldn't discipline them. So when they, when they get out to go to the bathroom, you know, you know the way kids, I, mean, I did this myself. You leave to go to the bathroom and you're gone for a half an hour, you know, whatever. Because, uh, whatever. You walk the halls. I shouldn't tell you this, but okay. Uh, so uh, people kept on walking out and walking the halls until he said, he says he was giving a shear. And finally, there's only one boy left in the class. So he said to the boy, do you need to go to the bathroom? He said, yeah. <laughs> so he said, so after half of the class, there was nobody left. So he just learned. He sat and he learned the rest of the class. But then he realized, he says that he's not uh, a disciplinarian enough. He can't impose discipline. So he felt he wasn't, uh, he wasn't good to be a classroom, a classroom teacher. So, but... Uh, so he was a very, very nice person. But as they say, the pressures were such that people could not spend time, a lot of time with them. So he had handlers and secretaries and different people who would guard the, the doors and, and, and the like. Okay. But he, he's a Hrobaruch. I mean, phenomenal. You know, every year, what he would finish, every year, is unbelievable, he would finish the whole Babylonian Talmud, the whole Jerusalem Talmud, the Tanakh, of course, he did. Zohar, he did uh, Rambam, Shulchanar. Every year, every year he finished everything. Every year, it was just uh, unbelievable. There was no, I mean, in terms of that, it's very, very unique. Uh, that he just knew, uh, just knew Kolator, 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 in that, in that way. In fact, the Chazonish was his uncle. Was his uncle. The Chazonish died a lot, many years ago. And Chazanish described him, and I can give you a little Chabad connection here. Chazanish described Chaim Kinevsky when he was only at 2020. He said, his knowledge is like the rugged shepherds. Now, now I'll give you a connection with the rugged shepherd and the, and the Rebbe. The rugged shepherd, Gon, from Rugged Shav, 
His name was Rav Yosef Rosen. And he was actually a Chabad Chassid, technically, although uh, it's hard to imagine him as a Chassid because he was not revatling himself to anybody, but Rokhat uh, Shavuot was a phenomenal, like, super genius who knew everything. And you, you, you wouldn't, even if you were a big Talmud Chacham, you didn't want to get into a discussion with him because he would just cut you down. He was just very... Like, they say Rav Aaron Cutler, who was a genius and a Rosh Hashiva at 22, wanted to talk in learning with the Rebbe Shavar, but he was, he was scared to identify himself as a Rosh Hashiva because the Rebbe Shavar would give him you know, full blast treatment. So he said, he just said he was a businessman who learns a few hours a day, and he wanted to tell the Rebbe Shavar some of his Torah. So he tells the Rebbe Shavar his Torah, and the Rebbe Shavar's highest compliment was, you know, for a businessman, you're not too bad. <laughs> and that was like the highest, highest compliment. But uh, it's interesting that uh, the Rebbe got his own smicha, his own ordination from the Rebbe Shavu. So that's a connection there. So Chaim Konevsky had a learning style that's very, very similar to the Rebbe Shavu. So there's uh, indirect connections, connections there. How much Gemara do you have to learn a day? How much Gemara you have to learn? All right, so, so, so I know, we, we know his, his thing was like this. Uh, to finish, uh, he learned uh, eight blots, eight pages a day of Babylonian Talmud and eight pages of, or I think four pages of Yerushalmi. So he finished, Yerushalmi is shorter. So he finished both in a year. But then Rambam, and then Shulchan Aruch. I mean, Rambam, you know, Chabad has a calendar. I don't know how many Chassidim do this. It's really hard. It's three chapters. It's three chapters a day, you finished Rambam. But how many, do you know anyone does three chapters? That, that is? Yeah. Huh? Three is what they do? That is very hard. Three is very, very hard. Okay, so, so he did his three chapters a day of that. And then Zohar, I don't know, Zohar, Medrash Rabbah, I mean, just uh, all these things. And he, rem- he remembered it. He remembered it. He could ask like, any, anything, you know, uh, he, he could tell you what it says, where it is. He could also tell you what's not said. Because a lot of times people have sayings that they quote. This happens all the time. Somebody says, oh, the Zohar says. And you ask, you know, it happens to me. Where does the Zohar say it? Oh, well, everybody, everybody says it's the Zohar. But, you know, uh, once in a while, you have a person who says, nope, it's not in the Zohar. I know the whole Zohar, you know, it's not, it's not in there. So he could say what was not in the books, which is actually harder than them saying what it is in the books, because he had to know the whole thing to know what was not in there. So he was, and the, I mean, the Rebbe Shabbat was that there as well. I mean, and, I, mean the, I mean, the Rebbe was that way. If you look at the Sichos, you see all the, all the things from all over the place, uh, all the footnotes and the footnotes to the footnotes, uh, an amazing, an amazing thing. So it can make a person sometimes a little depressed when you, when you see the, the absolute greatness in Torah that people like that have, and then you say, how far we are from it. But, but listen, but you know, the old story, you have to look at the stars that at least pulls you out of the mud. You know, a little bit, uh, we're not gonna reach that much rate, but we can all be, be higher than, than we are, and that's, that's what we look at uh, for inspiration. Okay, so uh, again, so although I'm uh, a little sad that I didn't get to go, but again, as I say, um, somebody said to me, uh, I thought with your gray hair or white hair you would go. And I said, well, no, because of my white hair, I don't go. <laughs> you get older, you know. <laughs> I don't want to get caught in a million, uh, crowd of a million people, whatever. The people are afraid of Mehran, God forbid. You know, Mehran had, uh, remember, like Balmer. But, uh, I mean, 
Bezrat Hashem, but logically nothing's going to happen because now they're extra, extra, extra alert and extra cautious. Uh, so, so my own B'derech HaTavah is not going to repeat itself uh, anymore. So I tell people, but, I mean, some people ask me, they were concerned about their kids going to B'nai Brak. I, I, I didn't think there was any, any Sakhan. And Bezrat Hashem will not be anything. The other thing is, of course, um, Russia and the Ukraine. Going on there, and uh, in a way, it's a difficult situation for Yidden because uh, Putin is uh, is for whatever reasons it's not the same Shemayim, but Putin is is friendly to the Jews in Russia, and uh, here's also a Chabad story because they say when he was uh, a kid growing up, and his kids his parents would come home late for work, so most of the neighbors just ignored him, but uh, a Chabad couple. He's a guy. Chabad couple took him in, gave him treats, did homework with him. <laughs> so he grew up with the association that religious Yidin are, are good people. So even though he became a communist and a KGB guy and everything else, he happens to have a warm feeling for Jews. So he's been okay to the Jews in Russia. He's been all right. So on one hand, invading a country is, uh, is an awful, awful, awful thing. Obviously it is. Although there was a cute... Uh, video, maybe it's kind of a poem story a little bit, about these three Russian soldiers burst into a, they burst into a, a home, they, whatever they, they order the couple to leave. Now the couple is old man and old woman. So the old woman just comes out and starts lecturing the soldiers, get out of here, this is my house, you know, get out of here. Mm-hmm. So the soldier fires in the sky just to scare her, you know, so she says, Put that guy, put that gun down. You know, you could hurt somebody. <laughs> and then this little dog comes out and starts barking, or barking away. And uh, she just pushes. She and her husband come out, but she's the main one. She just pushes the soldiers out of the house. Come on, get out, 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 out. And the guy keeps on, you know, pointing his gun, says, out, 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 and then they lock the door. <laughs> it's very cute. They just, they just leave. She just kicked them out. You know? <laughs> Like a few, a few, uh, maybe a week ago. Oh. This was in Ukraine. Someone, someone somehow took a video in Ukraine oh. of what was going on. She just said, you know, you're not, you're not, you know, you're not taking over my house. Just get out of here. You know, <laughs> you know so the power, the power of Jewish women, right? I'm not Jewish. I, I, power of women generally become a claimer. Okay. So anyway, um, again, though, uh, since Purim is all about hastara, concealment, so maybe part of the Hester Panim is that we lose Sadiqim. So that's also part of the Hester Panim. But from the Hester Panim will come a great, great revelation. And that's uh, what we hope and what we pray for. That, uh, this should be coming, uh, again, part of Chavle Mashiach, birth pains of Mashiach. Birth pains are painful, pain. That, but in order to have Geula, there will be a lot of pain. Now, Kali Israel has already suffered in the course of our history. So much pain. So we hope that uh, it's over. But there's still sometimes extra. Sometimes we have um, you know, late deliveries. Sometimes uh, labor takes a little longer uh, than the doctors thought. So maybe we're having an extended labor. But the answer is Hashem. It will be a, uh, a great birth of the, the or of Mashiach. Okay. Alrighty, so uh, if you remember, uh, we were talking last time, going back to our medical ethics topic, we were talking about suicides and the question, I know switching topics is so radical. Uh, 
And the question uh, we were discussing was Shaul HaMelech. This is a good question. Because in the, in the book of Shmuel base, I'm sorry, the book of Shmuel Aleph, the end of Shmuel Aleph, Shaul has been uh, injured by the Philistines. And Shaul is basically fatal. He's going to die. But he doesn't want to be captured by the Philistines alive. So he tells his arms bearer, I'm going to review a little bit, uh, kill me, take my sword and kill me so I should not fall alive in the hands of the Philistines. The arms bearer did not want to do that. He says, how can I send my sword against the anointed one of Hashem, Mashiach Hashem? So Shaul took his own sword and he fell upon his sword and he died. So you have a problem. Uh, Shaul HaMelech killed himself. That's what the book of Shmuel Aleph says. So what hetcher does Shaul have to kill himself? So there are a few answers. I'm going to review very quickly. We're not going to be marich in it. Answer number one is that Shaul did not have a heter to do it, but Shaul was suffering so much pain and he had so much fear that he was, in a sense, temporarily insane and therefore he was not responsible for his action. In other words, not that he was allowed to do it. He was not allowed to do it, but he's not responsible because essentially he was not well. Now, if you remember, we apply this rule all the time. For example, under strict halacha, if a person commits a premeditated suicide, we do not sit shiva for them, we do not mourn them, we don't say kaddish, uh, and, and the like. And yet, that's only true if it's premeditated without depression or severe pain. If a person committed suicide out of depression or severe pain, we do sit shiva for them, and we do bury them in a Jewish cemetery, and we do say kaddish, why? Because the person is not responsible for what they did. It was kind of a temporary insanity. And then we have a catch-22, since nobody would commit suicide unless they had severe pain or depression. So the halacha that you don't sit shiva is almost a dead letter. In other words, on one hand, there's a halacha, you don't sit shiva. On the other hand, since almost every suicide is interpreted as severe depression or pain, we wind up sitting shiva. So as I, as I think I told you, when I was a, a rab in Maryland and I had um, family members of members of my congregation who apparently took their life, uh, I know, routinely would paskin under the circumstances that they would sit shiva and they would, uh, they would recite Kaddish and the like. So that could be the shawl, right? So answer number one of shawl is that shawl was kind of temporarily insane because of pain and because of fear. Now, answer number two for Shaul was that Shaul was afraid that if he would be captured alive, he would be tortured to worship Avodah Zorah. Philistines worshiped idols. Now, the halachic chiddish innovation here is, since you are supposed to be willing to die, before you worship Avodah Zorah, if you think that the torture is going to break you, you can kill yourself in order to avoid Avodah Zorah. Now, see the Chiddush here? In other words, 
the same argument that you let yourself be killed would even allow you to kill yourself because he's afraid of Avodazara. Because torture can sometimes break a person. And if Shaul was afraid that the torture would break him, he took his life in order not to be over on Avodazara. That's approach number two. How? Yeah. How is that like halakhically okay though? Because, like, aren't you, isn't a person not supposed to like kill themselves or give up hope to like, like how could he even know that the, that the Plishtim are gonna actually torture him? It was yeah, just well, a guess. Like, you can't, how can you... Well, well, first of all, I mean, as, as king, I mean, I think his guess was, was more than just uh, some uh, speculation. I think he had a reasonable basis uh, for that's what, they, that's what they would want to do because they would proclaim this as a victory to their God and that their God is superior to the God of Israel. Right? That's kind of what they would do, and they would make a whole celebration of it, and part of it would be that they would make him worship of Zorah. But still, uh, your point is still a very good point, because many, many shitos say, you're not allowed to take your own life. It's one thing that I say, no, I'm not going to worship an idol even if they kill me. But that's not the same thing as saying I can take a knife and kill myself. So you're right. Many Rishonim, many commentators argue with this premise. But I will say that during the Crusades, there were Jews who did commit suicide because they were afraid that they would be tortured into professing belief in Christianity. So some Rishonim say that was prohibited, others do say it was mudger. Okay, the idea is that whenever you're mechayiv to give your life, you're allowed to take your life. That would be the correlation. Now the third understanding, and this is, the th- I gave you three answers, right? So the third understanding was that Shaul took his life in order that he shouldn't be tortured, but for a different reason, and that is, if he would be tortured, that would totally demoralize the Jewish army, and as a result, they would not fight as well, and their lives would be endangered. So he gave his life in order that their lives would not be jeopardized. So that raises a fascinating question, can you give your life to save other people? Because that's what this answer is saying. He gave his, again, it's, an, it's an indirect, convoluted idea, that what? That if I would be tortured, then my soldiers would, would not fight as well, and many of them might be killed, so I will take my life, so they will not be demoralized. So essentially, what did he do? He took his life to save the lives of others. Not to avoid Avodah according to this third answer. He took his life to save the lives of others. So that's the question. Am I allowed to take my life in order to save other people? Yeah, do you want to say? I, I was wondering if that is a similar scenario as the one where... Um, I think this was a case. I forget the name of the soldier that like jumped into uh, on, into the the bump that was going to explode. Yes. It's, yes. It's, 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 so that's really our question. So let, let let's analyze a few different scenarios. First, let's consider the role of a policeman, a fireman, or a soldier. Now these are dangerous jobs. Now, in a sense, these are people who are risking their lives in order to save other people. 
But that's not a proof to suicide. Risking your life to save others is for sure much. But deliberately killing yourself to save other people, maybe that's not much. Uh, now, an example of deliberately killing yourself would be jumping on a grenade. That, that would be the example. A grenade is thrown into a room. And if it explodes, let's say 20 people are likely to die. But a soldier, or even not a soldier, jumps on the grenade so they absorb the whole explosion. And as a result, less, fewer people are going to get hurt. Now that's not risky. That's not, that's not like, you know, oh, a policeman's going to work and you know, he's putting himself in a dangerous situation. That is deliberately killing yourself. Knowing, unless it's a supernatural miracle, and, and in halacha, you don't make cheshbon. I mean, Hashem could do anything, but halachically, you do not make a decision based on a supernatural miracle. So he has to assume he's going to die, even if Hashem might do a miracle. So if that's the case, is he allowed to do that? I mean, that's mamish the same shayla, meaning what Shaul did is analogous, as you pointed out, to jumping on a grenade, right? So again, uh, these are machloksim. All of these answers are machloksim. Some say you are allowed to take your life to save other people. Others say that suicide is suicide, right? But, but this third answer would presuppose this. They say that during the Holocaust, um, at one point, uh, the Nazis were looking for the Gera Rebbe. Gera was in Poland, the largest Hasidus in Poland. Gera was very, very big. And the Gera Rebbe was considered to be, by the Germans, he was considered to be the leader of the Jews in Poland. So uh, the Nazis came to the house where the Rebbe was being uh, hidden. And uh, of course many Hasidim had beards, and gray beards and the white beards. So they said, where's the Rebbe? So a guy stepped forward and said, I am the Rebbe, who was, was not the Rebbe, because he wanted to be killed so they wouldn't look for the Rebbe. And they immediately shot him, and the Rebbe was, was saved that way. He was able to be smuggled out. So that would be an example, too, of giving your life in order to save others. That would be a machlokas. I'm not giving you a psakalacha, but there is such an opinion that you are allow, allowed to give your life to save other people. And according to this, Shaul had that cheshbon that he was saving Jewish lives by not allowing himself to be tortured and humiliated by the polishtim in front of the Jewish people. Yeah, I'm sorry, you were there? I was just wondering if in that case, that, that man didn't know he was actually going to be killed, he just did it purely just to save the other. Second, so in that, that case, Yes. Uh, oh, um, well, you, you could say that, but I think the understanding was that they were going to they were going to kill. In other words, when he said, "I am uh, the Rebbe," he, he knew he was going to be killed. I mean, they were. Uh, and you, you know, you're giving an alternative explanation. Perhaps you're suggesting that perhaps he didn't know he was going to be killed right then and there. Was, yeah. That, that's a possibility. It is a possibility. I think the way the story is told, he he understood that, uh, but. Uh, I, I, I would make it similar to the grenade. You're saying perhaps it's a little different than the grenade case. Yeah, I understand. But that's that's the interesting question. Can you give your life to save to save others? What's the like like majority of 
Uh, I think the majority opinion does permit it. Does permit it because you're saving life. And in the case of a Rebbe, it's a one for one. It's not a Talbot Homer if you're saving many lives, uh, as it were. Okay. Um, so, yeah. I have a different scenario. Yeah. What happens if a person. Could, that, could, a, could a person use that argument to, I mean, to um, donate their organs to, and save 10 people's lives? Yeah, yeah. That's very fascinating. I was, Mamish, as I was talking, I was thinking of exactly that question. So it's telepathy here. Uh, that is, uh, normally, you know, we can't, <laughs> I mean, let's say, I have, uh, I have five patients. One patient needs a heart, one patient needs a liver, one patient needs lungs. And I don't have these organs. So you're walking by the street. And I say, huh, you look healthy. I just bring you in and cut you up. Now, that's called murder, right? Of course, of course I can't murder somebody to save somebody else. That's obvious. But here's the question. What if you come in you're on your own and you say, I, want, I would rather die and give up my five organs so that five people would live? Now that's a different halakha category. That's not murder to save other people, that's suicide to save other people. Now, suicide could be described as murder, but on the other hand, if there's a leniency that I could decide to give up my life to save somebody else, then that would apply to the organ case too. The only question is, unless you can cut out your own organs, you would need somebody to do it. So th that somebody has no head here, meaning you have the right to take your life, like jump on the grenade, but I don't have the right to cut into you. Right? So, so, what if so operationally, I don't know how the organ case could work. Operationally, can't a person like, kill themselves? And then someone oh, in other words, kill himself first. Okay, yeah, you're right, you're right. In other words, of course, There'll be a problem in retrieving the organs, but putting that aside, in other words, if I want to save five people, so according to this Hatcher, I could kill myself and then doctors could remove my organs. Okay, again, putting aside the issues of how fast the organs deteriorate, that's a, another issue. Yeah, that would fall within this category. You, you are correct. But you couldn't have a surgeon do it while you're alive because he has no Hatcher of murder. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's a, okay, that's a very, uh, okay, very good. Alrighty, so those are three answers of how to reconcile Shaul with suicide. By the way, I, I'm not sure if I mentioned this, um, anybody here from Canada? So the Canadian Supreme Court, this was maybe a while ago, maybe 10 years ago, they actually issued a, a, a court opinion that says the right to take your own life is a guaranteed constitutional liberty, meaning uh, a province could not even pass a law against suicide. That uh, suicide is your absolute right. Uh, it's a constitutional guarantee. Now, the United States Supreme Court never said that. They said if a state wants to prohibit suicide, it can do so. But in Canada, Mamish becomes uh, a constitutional right, which is pretty, pretty amazing. Uh, the government cannot even, of course, suicide, well, you can't go to jail for committing the crime of suicide because if you're successful, you're dead. Uh, but but you, can't, you can go to jail for attempted suicide, meaning if you tried to kill yourself and uh, it failed, 
you have committed a crime and you can go to jail. For, for, according to Lou no, second, second, second. to a psychiatrist. Yeah, usually, usually, usually they'll, they'll give him psychiatric evaluation, so usually he won't go to jail. But the doctor that gave you, yeah, but the doctor that gave you the um, prescription, let's say, knowing you would use it for suicide, mm-hmm. uh, the doctor is, is guilty of a crime. Now in Canada, that could, that's not the case because the doctor is helping you do your legal constitutional right. But in the United States, uh, uh, the physician can be prosecuted, except in Oregon and Washington. Those are two states of the United States which have legalized not only suicide, but physician-assisted suicide. That's where the physician gives you the medicine, uh, knowing that you're going to use it to kill yourself. And in a lot of countries, it's, it's actually uh, permitted. The Netherlands, uh, this is permitted. Scandinavian countries, I'm not sure which ones, uh, but I think Norway, Sweden, Denmark, uh, some of them allow the assisted suicide. And uh, it's a scary thing uh, because, uh, I mean, there's a protocol you have to follow. You can't just go to your doctor and say, I want to kill myself, give me a prescription for, uh, you know, there, there has to be a protocol, there have to be standards that are met. But it was discovered that a lot of these assisted suicides were temporary treatable depression. Meaning if they would wait a little bit, they would get over it. Uh, have you ever heard of the, uh, the poet, uh, she's a woman poet, uh, Sylvia Plath? She was a famous uh, British poet. The Bell Jar, she wrote uh, different things. And Sylvia Plath had a lot of um, psychiatric problems over the years and she tried to take her life uh, a number of times. And uh, she was not successful. Uh, her last attempt was successful. But the story goes that she overdosed on barbiturates uh, and the cleaning lady was supposed to come within an hour of her taking the medicine. And she had done this in the past, kind of taking the medicine, having somebody discover her, and then taking her to a hospital. It's almost like part of her planning process. And that day, the cleaning lady called up. She was already unconscious. Uh, said that she was going to be an hour late. So as a result, nobody came to rescue her in the throes of her overdose. So she died of the overdose, but uh, many understand that she did not expect to die from that. She, you know, she wanted to make a, a dramatic statement, and the idea would be that the cleaning lady would rescue her, as had been done a number of, a number of times. So uh, not all suicides are, are intentional. Sometimes. Uh, People are desperate, they want to get attention, they want people to notice them, they want people to understand the depths of their misery, again, which is very severe, but they didn't really want to uh, actually leave the world. A lot likely, why would that be considered? So I think under those circumstances, if she truly expected, it's hard to read her mind, but if she truly expected that she would be rescued, then she didn't intend to kill herself. So it would be an unintentional suicide. But it's still a problem halakhically because we're not allowed to risk her life. Oh yeah, yeah. So she she transgressed risking her life for sure. But the rule that a suicide is not sitshiva, we don't sitshiva, so that that would not apply. But you are correct. Of course, it's a very big avera to put yourself at risk of death on the assumption that somebody's going to rescue you in time. I mean, things things happen. Things happen all the time. Okay. So those are the three basic answers for Shimshon. I'm sorry, for Shaul HaMelech. Now, let me give you a fourth answer, 
which is a very, from a very, very interesting source. It'll give you a little bibliographical history. This is from a sefer that's called Teshuvos, the responsa, Bisamim Rosh, which means choicest spices, name of the sefer. So I'm going to tell you a little bit of information about the sefer because it's very fascinating. This, uh, the sefer was printed in the 1700s. And it claimed to be something that would be extraordinarily important. One of the greatest, greatest of the medieval Rishonim was a man called Rabbeinu Asher, called the Rush. Have you heard of the Rush? Resh Aleph means head, same. Resh Aleph Shin, that's Rabbeinu Asher ben Yechiel. And Rabbeinu Asher is one of the great, great, great poskim of the Rishonim. The Tor was the son of the rush, Rav Yaakov ben Asher, Rav Yaakov Balaturim, and the like. So the Samim Rosh claimed to be, the person who printed the manuscript said, these were long lost chubos of the rush. The rush lived in the 1200s. This is 500 years later. Now, if, so this safer was printed, on the claim that these are the responsa of Rabbeinu Asher that had been lost for 500 years. What's it called again? Bisamim Rosh. So Rosh is a pun on Rush. So this was, this generated a lot of excitement in the Torah world. To Mamish have Chuvos of the Rush? That's amazing. But it turned out that this was a forgery the guy that published them was a big, was, he must have been a big Talmud Chacham because the Chuvos are learned discussions. But they're not from Rabbeinu Asher, they're from him, the guy in the 1700s. But he figured if he would write his Chidushim, nobody would pay attention. <laughs> He's just another rabbi. Uh, but if these are, this is reverse plagiarism, right? Uh, mm-hmm. One type of plagiarism is when I take the words of a great person and I say them in my name. That's plagiarism. This is the other way around sometimes. I write my words, but I want people to respect it more. So I say, it's in the name of somebody somebody great. So this, I don't, know, I don't know if there's any technical term, I call it reverse plagiarism. So now it turns out that Bissamim Rosh has really gone down in authority because it's no longer Rabbeinu Asher. It's uh, the guy, the guy. But again, he must have been learning. But first of all, number one, he's not the rush. But number two, the fact that he forged also makes yeah, it like makes it bad as well. Lack of, uh, lack of honesty, whatever you're a So there's a big, big machlokas. Some some poskim still use the Bissamim Rosh as a source of at least authority, meaning they'll look at what he says. They're not going to say, "Oh, this is the rush, so it's holy," but they'll evaluate. He'll make an argument from a Gemara, from a Rambam. So some will look at it as a halachic book and they will use the arguments and the reasoning that he says and some refuse to look at it. Some consider it treif and they consider it to be not valid because it emanated from a uh, dishonesty. Right? So it's interesting. Raja Yosef, for example, the great Sephardic Godol, uh, used the Sommim Rosh as a source even though he knew it was a forgery, we can still look at the arguments, even if the author did something that wasn't, wasn't right. So, 
The Bissamim Rosh happens to say a very interesting interpretation about Shaul that is unique. And he says the following. The heter of Shaul to commit suicide, the heter, not just temporary insanity, the heter is if a person is suffering great excruciating pain that cannot be alleviated. And he is in a condition where his death is going to be relatively quick anyway, meaning he's already in a terminal condition, suffering great pain. He is allowed to take his life to prevent continuation of extreme suffering. Wow. If you accept that position, you are essentially endorsing physician-assisted suicide because physician-assisted suicide is exactly people who are in a terminal condition, meaning that they're expected to live less than a year. They are suffering excruciating pain. So the Basama Rosh says, you're allowed to take your life. Now, I do want to point out, because this is Basamim Rosh, it's not Rabbeinu Asher Ben Yechiel, and Basamim Rosh is a minority opinion of one. Halacha does not accept him, does not accept him. Okay, that's important. But at least there is one opinion like that that's on the record. But uh, maybe I shouldn't have even said it because La uh, Halacha, we absolutely do not accept that position. We do not allow a person to take his life because he's suffering pain. If he took his life because he's suffering pain, we might poskin he's temporarily insane. But no rough can give a person a hector. You are allowed to take your life because of your pain. Uh, but the Basavim Rush did have such a, such a view. Let me give you another story, just to totally digress. Another story of a famous forgery that was even more notorious. And that is... You know, we have the Talmud Bavli and we have the Talmud Yerushalmi, right? And as you know, all Gemaras are written as commentaries on tractates of the Mishnah. So the Mishnah of Brachos has a commentary called the Gemara of Brachos. Mishnah plus Gemara is called Talmud. So Maseches Brachos is a combination of Mishnah and Gemara, right? Now we know that the Babylonian Talmud uh, the fourth order of the Mishnah is sacrifices. So there are many tractates about sacrifices, Zavachim, Menachos. And in the Babylonian Talmud, we have a Gemara. Even though Babel didn't have a Beis HaMikdash, but they studied the laws of sacrifices, and we have a Babylonian Gemara. So you can look at Maseches Zavachim, Korbanos, Maseches Menachos, meal offerings, whole Gemaras. But, interestingly enough, the Talmud Yerushalmi, there is no Gemara on the Kachim, on the Korbanos Masechus. There is no Yerushalmi on Kachim. There's a Yerushalmi on agriculture, and a Yerushalmi on holidays, a Yerushalmi on family law, marriage and divorce, a Yerushalmi on civil law, contracts, and Bavamitsiya. There's no Yerushalmi on Kachim. Kachim are sacrifices. Now, interestingly enough, Rambam says in his commentary to the Mishnah that there is a Yerushalmi on Kachi. He says that. Problem is, we don't have it. So the suggestion seems to be that the Rambam had tractates 
of the Talmud Yerushalmi in the 1100s that somehow got lost. That's pretty bad. We've actually lost. It's one thing to say you've lost response of the rush. That's, that's bad. But to lose a whole Gemara. So, lo and behold, in the early 1900s, I don't have the exact date, a rabbi claimed to have discovered a manuscript of the Talmud Yerushalmi on Korbanos. And he published the manuscript and he wrote a commentary like Rashi that explains the simple pshat and a more of an elaborate pilpul commentary like Tostos. Now that he said what he wrote. He gave himself credit, but he said, but the thing in the middle is Gemara. You show me Gemara. Now, can you imagine, number one, what exciting news that is to discover a Gemara that had been lost for hundreds of years? That would be, really be a tremendous, uh, tremendous joy. And many, many great rabbis were so enthusiastic and they gave their endorsement. And they said, wonderful, wonderful thing. It turned out, however, that he forged it. He forged a Gomorrah, which he then wrote commentaries on. Now, first of all, to be able to forge a Gomorrah, you have to be quite, quite, quite accomplished. This cannot be done by Stamaganov, you know? And Yerushalmi, even more so, because Yerushalmi is, uh, even people who learn Gemara are much less familiar with Yerushalmi than Babli. He had to master the knowledge. He had to master the style. He had to make up the questions and answers that make up a discussion in Gemara. This is a phenomenal accomplishment. I mean, sometimes the people who even do Averus. <laughs> I mean, the, the amount of talent and knowledge he needed to pull that off is quite amazing. But it turned out to be a forgery. So the Yushalmi on so I'll tell you how, one way they found out. So the Yushalmi on Kutchim was never reprinted because there is no Yushalmi on Kutchim, it's a forgery. I remember when I was in Yeshiva, I was told that under lock and key they had a copy of it, whatever it was, just as a, as a relic. Now you can get it actually on Hebrewbooks.org, which is a free, you know, Swarim site for this. Many Svarim, you can actually see it. I mean, it's not worth. I mean, it's not worth anything because it's all fake. Uh, but it's an amazing, an amazing thing. Uh, so, how did how was it discovered that was a forgery? He actually had letters of rabbis, great rabbis. So they say that the rocket shop. There are two, there are two versions of the story. Story number one is he told somebody. <laughs> he was uh, very proud of himself. He was proud of himself. You, know, you pull off something like that, it is very hard to keep it to yourself. So you tell somebody. Once you tell somebody, that's the end of, that's the, end of the road. You're gone. Uh, that's what they tell a story about um, a rabbi. It's a joke, they say. Uh, this rabbi was a, a, he was an Orthodox rabbi, but he was a golf addict. He had to play golf before show, no matter what the day. So even on Yom Kippur, so Yom Kippur davening, let's say, starts uh, 9 o'clock or 8.30, he has to go to the golf course. So the malachim and shamayim surround the kisei akavot, and they say, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, strike this man dead. He is supposed to be a rabbi, he's supposed to be a teacher, he's supposed to teach Am Yisrael how to serve you, and look what he does on the holiest day of the year. He goes and he plays golf, 
Kill him. He must die. Hashem says, I have a better idea. So the rabbi is by himself on the golf course, because even the Reformed Jews, they don't, they don't go play on Yom Kippur, right? And the rabbi gets a hole in one. A hole in one? So the malachim say to Hashem, this is what you, the reward you give to such a Russia? He says, yeah, who is he going to tell? <laughs> Meaning, he can't tell anybody. So that's the biggest pain of all. Great. Something great happened and you cannot, you have to keep it to yourself. So this is exactly what happens with uh, Friedlander was his name, uh, this Rabbi Friedlander. And uh, he couldn't tell, he, he had to tell somebody. Once he told somebody, so the cat is out of the bag as the expression goes. So it spreads and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the other version of the story is, this brings us back to the rugged shover. Remember, I talked about the rugged shover. The rugged shover gave the Rebbe Smicha. Rugged shover was super brilliant genius. And the rugged shover made an observation that only the rugged shover could possibly make. The rugged shover said, in every single tractate of the Bavli and the Yerushalmi, there is one rabbi who is not mentioned by name in any other tractate. Meaning, most rabbis are mentioned many times. Rav Yochanan. Rav Yochanan is mentioned in many Masechtas. Hillel and Shammai, many Masechtas. Abaye and Rava, many Masechtas. But every Masechta has a rabbi that's only mentioned in that Masechtas. Meaning there's one person in Brachos who's not mentioned anywhere else. One person in Shabbos who's not mentioned anywhere else. One person in Zavachim who's not mentioned anywhere else. The Rebbe Chaber said, in this fake Gemara, every single rabbi has a name that's mentioned in some other tractate. Mm. So there's no singularity in this tractate. To him, that was proof. Like, how would a person even notice that? Uh, that is proof that this is not authentic. He wrote the whole, he forged the whole not just like one page or two pages? No, he, well, he forged two tractates. It, it wasn't the whole order of Kashem, but he forged tractate Chulin and tractate Pachoros, two Masechus. Two whole Masechus. So this was hundreds of pages. Chulin and Pachoros. Wow. Yeah, not just a fragment. So the Rukh said, every tractate has to have a name that's not repeated anywhere else. There's no name that's not repeated anywhere else. people who are one Masechta not as well known? Say again? Oh, why they're mentioned only once? Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, usually not going to, I mean, by definition, they're not going to be as well known because you're not going to encounter them that often. But why is their teaching only recorded in that Masechus? That's a bit of a mystery because surely they knew the other Masechtas too. But why uh, it was thought to incorporate them only there, I'm not, that I don't know. But but, but in terms of a learner, sure, sure they'll be less familiar to you. Certain names, I know you learn Gemara here too, certain names you encounter very often. Uh, but once in a while you'll get a name that you know, you'll never see again. Do you know any offhand of this? Yeah, yeah, some of them, there's a Rabbi Zuhumoy uh, in the Seches Brachos, which is interesting, that's also a nickname, Zuhumoy means filthy, uh, which is not such a nice name, but that's because the one halacha that he talks about is the need to wash Maya Machronim because your hands might be dirty. You know, so sometimes the people that are only mentioned once are given a nickname based on the halacha that they teach. But, you know, that's a real good question. I mean, because remember, the Gemara was compiled 
by two rabbis, Ravina and Ravashi, over a period of 50 years, based on hundreds of years of discussions that were taking place in different yeshivas. So they had to pick and choose which statements they would incorporate in the light. So it's very fascinating that we don't really know a lot about the editorial process. In other words, they had masses of material, and they chose how to put it. But even the question and answer format was an editorial thing, meaning there were different discussions. They put it into the question and answer format, you see? Uh, so uh, I sometimes think, you know, uh, uh, my, my office is, is a big mess. My office in Orsameach is a big, big mess. So whenever I want to describe disarray or chaos, I, I use my office as an example. So I think, imagine Ravina and Ravashi having to compile a Gemara. So I said, imagine my office. There's notebooks from all over the Jewish world, hundreds and hundreds of, of uh, you know, years and, and hundreds and thousands of people. And they have to go through it and say, oh, this goes in, this doesn't go in, this goes in. Right? How do you make a decision like that? It took them 50 years, 5 years. years. To, to, to put the Gemara in the shape that we have it. Because they have to... Oh, no, the Bible. Yeah, they did the Bible. Yishami was earlier. The Yishami was earlier. But the Yishami was done in Eretz Yisrael, so uh, that was a different person. Rav Yochanan. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah. Rav Yochanan, Rav Yochanan is treated, was mentioned many times in the Babli, too. Rav yeah, so but Rav Yochanan is, is the editor of the Yushami. Oh, yeah. which Rav Yochanan is? This is Rav Yo- uh, the, the famous Rav Yochanan. Uh, that's mentioned in, he's mentioned in the Babli a lot. I mean, remember, a lot of the rabbis in the Yushami are in the Babli, too, they, they, because there were students who went from Eretz Israel to Babel who brought the teachings uh, back. No, no, no. So here you have to understand. Rav Yochanan ben Zakkai is a Tana. He's in the Mishnah. And he was the Nasi at the time of the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash mm-hmm. in the year 70. That's Rav Yochanan ben Zakkai. But the person who's just called Rabbi Yochanan, he doesn't say his name, right. his father's name, he happens to be Rav Yochanan ben Nafcha. He's an Amora. He's after the Mishnah. Now, again, a few dates here. The Beis Hamikdash was destroyed in the year 70. Which one? Second Beis Hamikdash. Second. The Mishnah was written in around the year 200 by Review Dhanasi. So the Mishnah was written 130 years after the destruction of the Second Beis Hamikdash. And that ends the period called Tanoim, which are the teachers of the Mishnah. Rav Yochanan is a first generation after the Mishnah. So Rav Yochanan is around uh, 200, after 200. So Rav Yochanan ben Zakkai is around 70. Rav Yochanan ben Nafcha is an Amora. He is around the year 200, after the year 200. And he's with Reish Lakish, right? You know the story, it's a beautiful story. Uh, Rav Yochanan's colleague, Student and colleague, Talmud and Chaber, is a man, Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish. And we abbreviate Rabbi Shimon Resh. Resh That's Resh Lakish. But it's Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish. So you know the story. It's a beautiful story, a famous story, uh, that Resh Lakish was uh, not religious. Resh Lakish was a robber, a bandit. 
And he once attacked Rav Yochanan. He wanted to kill him. And Rav Yochanan convinced him to become religious and to learn Torah. And Rav Yochanan promised him that if you change your ways, you will be able to marry my sister. Of course, the sister wasn't consulted on this, but uh, Rav Yochanan, I guess, could speak for his sister. And Reish Lakish became a Baal Shuba, and Reish Lakish became a great, great, great uh, Torah scholar. And throughout Shas, throughout the Talmud, Rav Yochanan and Reish Lakish were always debating things. So that's not Rav Yochanan ben Zakkai. Right? This is, so this Rav Yochanan is the editor of the Talmud Yerushalmi. Which is, so that's much earlier. So this would be uh, around, well, well, it wasn't the final version, but, but he lived around 200, 300. Talmud Yushami completed was 400, so there was some work after Rav Yochanan, but he was the first misader of the Talmud Yushami. Now, there's an interesting story the Gemara says about Rav Yochanan, that Reish Lakish died uh, relatively young, and Rav Yochanan was inconsolable because he said, Reish Lakish used to always question me all the time, Every time I said something, he would ask me 24 questions on everything I said. And when I had to answer it, I either admitted I was wrong or I, uh, uh, I, I developed my thoughts better and the Torah became so much richer because of all of these questions and answers. So in order to console Rav Yochanan, they put another disciple there that every time Rav Yochanan said something, the disciple gave him 24 proofs that he was right. So Rav Yochanan started crying. And he said, where is Resh Lakish? And uh, the Talmudim said, Rebbe, Resh Lakish would question you all the time and would give you trouble. This disciple is giving you proof that you're right. You should be happy. He said, I don't need someone to tell me I'm right. If I didn't think I was right, I wouldn't have said it. But when I was challenged, that's when the Torah became great because we then had deeper understandings. Right? So that was the relationship of Rav Yochanan and Rav Shimon ben Lakish. Rish Lakish says a beautiful mimer in Maseches Chagiga. He said, even the sinners of Israel, it's a famous Gemara, are as filled with mitzvos as a rimon, a pomegranate. Even the sinners of Israel. Afilu Poshe Yisrael, Malayan, Mitzvahs, Karimai. And of course, the pomegranate, according to Chazal, I've never counted it, is said to have 613 seeds. But whatever, it has a lot of seeds. And he said, a person is a sinner, but in his panemius, there is good. So I remember reading maybe when I was in fifth grade, Lubavitcher uh, Rebbe's memoirs. Remember that? You ever see that book? It's a good book. It's, uh, it's from the Priyataka Rebbe. Uh, he, he doesn't even reach the Alter Rebbe. It's a history of, of the Alter Rebbe's family before he gets to that. I think he gets as far as the Alter Rebbe's father, Rebbe Baruch. And then it didn't, didn't go into it. So it's like pre, it's really pre-Chabad, but it's, it's very, very interesting. But I remember there, uh, there's a scene in which uh, there's a blacksmith in a certain town and uh, he has three sons-in-law. Two of them are great, great Talmudic Chachamim, but they're totally against Hasidus. And the third son-in-law is like a Hasid in the early years of the Baal Shem Tov. Totally different. 
and the two sons-in-law are such elitists. So in Erev Pesach, they're, they're first born, they make a siyum. So they make a siyum on Yavamas, which is the hardest mesachas and shas. They're doing it in Dafyomi now, Yiba. And, you know, they make a siyum in a way that nobody, nobody at the siyum even understands it. It's only for, uh, and they don't care. There's a blacksmith, I don't remember his name, there's a blacksmith that has three sons-in-law. Two of them are big Tamarei Chachamim who are misnagdim, who don't, don't like Hasidim, and they don't really care about the common folk. So when they have to make a siyam of Pesach, they're making it on the hardest tractate in the Talmud, and they make a siyam that you know, nobody can understand them, only the greatest rabbis can understand them. And, you know, they don't really care the fact that simple people are listening, makes no difference. So the blacksmith, not, not the blacksmith, the third son-in-law wants to do something that can appeal even to the simple people. So again, the, the, the Friedrich Rebbe wrote all of these details down. So he says, he made a siyam at Maseches Chagiga, and Maseches Chagiga ends with this statement of Reish Lakish, that even the sinners of Israel are filled with mitzvahs like a pomegranate, and he used it as a way of expounding the pintle yid and the, uh, uh, the uh, godly soul, Shamel Nefesh Olokis. And he started saying that Reish Lakish is being autobiographical, which I thought was very nice. Because Reish Lakish said, look at me, I was a of. I was a gladiator, I was a murderer. I did all of the others. But Rav Yochanan recognized there was something good in me. And from that, I was able to come to Torah. And that's why Rish Lakish says, even the sinners of Israel are as filled with goodness as pomegranates because he's talking about his own experience. That's very nice. Actually, very, very nice. It's, it's very nice when you can connect what a Tana or an Amora says to their actual life because it, made it, it makes it meaningful. It comes out of their experience. In fact, the Rebbe said something also beautiful, beautiful. There's a Gemara in Sukkah. Actually, it brought tears to my eyes. I think the Rebbe started crying a little bit too. Uh, the Gemara says in Masechah Sukkah, I'm just connecting it to Rish Lakish, really. It's not connected to our topic. That, uh, you know, Kohanim were divided into 24 groups. 24 groups. You know, each week, a group called the Mishmar did the Avodah and it would rotate twice. So, one of the Mishmaros, the name is Bilga. Bilga is treated very disrespectfully. Bilga doesn't have its own cubbyhole. All the Mishmaros had cubbyholes for the garments. Bilga had to like improvise. And the Gemara Sukkah says, why is Bilga treated so badly? Like, you know, they're, they're a Mishmar, like any other Mishmar, they have their turn. Why are they treated disrespectfully? So the Gemara gives a story that there was a woman from this group of Kohanim, Miriam, that during the times of the Greeks and the Romans, uh, she married a non-Jew, a non-Jew. So number one, she committed intermarriage, obviously she wasn't keeping mitzvahs. And she entered the base of Mikdash and she took her shoe and she started banging on the Mizbeach and she called the Mizbeach Lucas. Lucas is Greek for wolf. You're a wolf. How long will you be consuming the money of Am Yisrael, the korbanos, and don't bring them a salvation? Right? So Chazal said this behavior is so outrageous and so improper that the whole Mishmar of Bilga was punished. So then the Gemara asks the obvious Kasha, 
I understand why she should be punished. Why are you punishing the whole Mishmar? Rigmar's answer is, meaning to say, uh, she must have been influenced by her society and her family, and if they would be tzaddikim, she would not have done this. So the Pashtas of the Gemara is that this is a pretty bad woman. I mean, she marries a guy, and then she has the chutzpah to go into the base of Mikdash with her shoes on, which you're not supposed to wear shoes anyway. And then she takes off her shoe, and she bangs on the Mizbeach, and she calls it a wolf. And really, she's not talking to the Mizbeach, she's talking to HaKadosh Baruch. But the Rebbe said, you know, you got to look beneath the surfaces. Of course, her behavior is atrocious. But look at what's motivating her. She's so far removed from Yiddishkeit. But her pain is that the Jewish people haven't been redeemed yet. Her pain is, why haven't you brought Yeshua to call Yisrael? Now, you might say, what does she care? She's doing well. She has a marriage to the guy, and she's in high society. But you see that even a Jew who's so far from Hashem, in their heart, they feel the pain of Am Yisrael. That's a very, very beautiful idea that nobody notices that. Uh, you know, we, 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 we read the story and we say, a uh, bad person. The Rebbe said, no. In that, in that situation, there's a pentelayit in which you see how much she cares about the Jewish people, even if it expresses itself in a very bad way. And that's what Jewish Lakish means. The sinners of Israel are filled with mitzvahs. That doesn't mean they do the mitzvahs. <laughs> Maybe they don't do the mitzvahs yet. But inside is an urge and a desire to serve Hashem in that in that way. Okay, so that's uh, how did I get into? I don't know how I got into this at all. Uh, it reminds me of my scattered train of thought. Huh? We were talking about Rish Lakish, and we got to Rish Lakish through Rav, Rav Yochanan. Yochanan, yeah. Who compiled. The, oh, compiled. Uh, right, right, gotcha. Okay, thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> Need like the secretary to take to take notes. Right, we were talking about the Bible of the Yerushalmi and, and and then the forgery. Right, the forgery. I right, got you. Okay, thank you. Okay. So that's the forgery of the Yerushalmi. So the forgery of Yerushalmi was like um, like 1920 or something like that. It was, it was uh, and I, I don't want to mention the Gedolim that were fooled, meaning to say there were some very, very great people who gave their approval uh, to, the, to the project uh, because it looked like it looked authentic. Only like the rugged shover was able to uh, see, see through it. When was the Bali Okay, so the Bavli was completed as a work around 600 of the Common Era. 600. Okay? I thought the base on the yeah. was destroyed in the year 68. Oh, so that's a Machlokas. Okay, okay. Oh, really? so, so it's between 68 and 70, meaning you actually have three different versions, 68, 69, 70. Uh, you'll see different, different, but it's within that. I did not know that. Um, I don't know why, why we don't know exactly. I mean, the Gemara says in certain circumstances that uh, because of the sorrows, the pain was so acute that we became a little disoriented. I'm not sure exactly consciously how to explain that. But there seems to have been a loss of time or a confusion of, of time. We do know that the Beis Mikdash was destroyed the year after Shemitah. The year after Shemitah. On the other hand, even that is a machloka. Some say it was burnt on Shemitah, but since that's so close to the end of the year, we count the first year of destruction as the next year. So there actually is a machlokas 
was the base of Mikdash destroyed in a Shemitah year or the year after Shemitah? Right? Does this change like our whole counting of the years? Um, well, it, it, it may change the calculation of Shemitah, yeah. It doesn't change the years from creation of the world. But it can change uh, what year is a Shemitah. And there is indeed a Machlokas. I mean, the Rambam says the Halacha, Shemitah is when we keep it. But there are some opinions that give a different year for Shemitah based on when the base of Mikdash was destroyed. Because 68, 69, 70. So a lot of things are very, very unclear about the chronology. Uh, but do remember that the Mishnah, even the Mishnah, is way after the Churban of the Second Temple. And then you have the Yushalmi, and then you have the Babli. So all of this is later. So now, when you, when you, now when did Rashi live? Just give it up. So Rashi lived in the 10 and 1100s. So Rashi is already 400 or 500 years after the Gemara. So at that point, uh, Rashi is a commentator. Rashi does not have the same stature as the uh, Tanam and Amorai. Okay? When did we start counting for Shemitah? When we came into the land with Yeshua? Okay, so this is very complicated. Uh, if, I don't know if you learn Rambam Yomi, but if you, if you get to Rambam Yomi, you'll, you'll get to it. Here's the thing. We started counting Shemitah only when the conquest and settlement of Israel was completed. And that was the 15th year, I meaning 14 years when Yoshua came into Eretz Israel, there were seven years of conquest, seven years of war, and then seven years of divide, it took such a long time, dividing the land among the tribes. Shemitah begins after the seven years of conquest and division. So Shemitah began, year one of Shemitah, year one of Shemitah began the 15th year after we came to Eretz Israel. So 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. So the 21st year after we came to Eretz Israel would be the first Shemitah. So how could we lose track of Shemitah? Ah, but what happened was this. What happened was this is that all of that count became nullified. In fact, our Shemitah today is not based on that count. Our, uh, all of that count became nullified when the first base of Mikdash was destroyed. And when Ezra came back after 70 years and built the second base on Mikdash, the count starts again. That even if under the old count it would have been year six, it now becomes year one. Meaning you didn't have a continuous count for the 70 years. So our Shemitah is not based on when Yehoshua started it. It's a new count that's based the, the Bayat Shani. And since there is some uncertainty about the Bayat Shani, you'd have that uncertainty as well. But now another complication, this confuse you even more, is how do you factor in Yovel and Shemitah? Mm -hmm. Now, here, here's the thing. You'll remember in the Torah, there are two special years. Every seventh year is Shemitah, and every 50th year which is, by the way, a year after Shemitah, right? Because year 49 mm -hmm. is Yovel. Now, Yovel overlaps with Shemitah in a lot of halakha. You don't, you don't farm the land, etc. But there are some unique halakhas that only apply to Yovel. For example, slaves 
go free. And all land in Eretz Yisrael goes back to the original owners or the Yorshim. Now, you're not old enough to know this, but maybe you know this anyway. We don't keep any Yovel today. We don't keep Yovel today. There just isn't Yovel. Well, why don't we keep Yovel? We don't keep Yovel because Yovel has a Tanai, a condition, that Yovel is only kept if most of the Jews are living in Eretz Yisrael. And since most of the Jews are not like living in Eretz Yisrael, there is no Yovel, there is only Shemitah. Okay? Now, people are now debating, well, gee, we're actually coming close to a majority of Jews living in Eretz Yisrael. Is that going to bring back Yovel? Okay, interesting questions. Okay, we're not there yet. Now, not only do we not keep Yovel today, we didn't even keep Yovel in the second base Hamikdash because the 10 tribes were not reunited. Wow. We didn't even keep Yovel in the last 100 years of the first base of Mikdash. So Yovel has been gone a real long time. But if you think about it, I don't want to make this too complicated because it is more complicated than I'm, I'm going to make it. But I want to at least you understand the question. When you had Yovel years, Shemitah is later than when you don't have Yovel years. So, so for example, Today, we don't have a Yovel year. So I just count, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, I count it seven times, then I continue counting. But if you have a Yovel year every 50 years, that's gonna make the next Shemitah a year later than it would be without the Yovel. Yovel is like a zero. You count one, two, three, four, five, six, let's say uh, 42, 43, 44, 45, 46, 47, 48, 49, Yovel is zero, the year after Yovel is year one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. If you don't have Yovel, Shemitah is going to be a year early. So that actually means Shemitah is not a continuous seven-year cycle. Part of that time, it was later because of Yovel. And when Yovel got discontinued, it became earlier. You see? So... You have to figure it out that if you, if you wanted to make a list of what years were Shemitah years, you have to know, number one, where to start counting. And you also have to know when was Yovel observed and when was Yovel not observed. Okay, you see? Because Yovel would make Shemitah later than it would otherwise be. So when Mashiach comes and we have Yovel again, so the Shemitah calculations are, are going to be different than the Shemitah calculations we have, we have today. Okay? So this is uh, yet another aspect of the complication of, of Shemitah. Well, the Bayit Shlishi will probably also, like if, if the Bayit Shaini reset the whole count, won't the third beta make the Yes, we're going, to, uh, we're going to reset it? Yes, we're going to. No, that, that's where you, well, that's less clear because there is a concept that although the holiness of Eretz Yisrael lapsed upon the destruction of the first temple, it did not lapse upon the destruction of the second temple. And therefore, the count will be continuous, but it will have to be augmented with a Yovel in the middle. Okay? And Yovel is going to push off Shemitah. So every Yovel cycle, Shemitah will be one year later than it otherwise would have been uh, had you had a Yovel. I'm sorry, had you not had a Yovel cycle. Why did, why did the Shemitah count start again? 
started? Well, it started again with the Second Temple because um, wh- wh- when the Chorban Bias Rishon happened, the halachic holiness of Eretz Yisrael terminated, and therefore the mitzvahs of Truma, Meiser, and Shemitah no longer applied. And therefore our coming back to the land was a new sanctification of the land that started everything again. And we're still keeping that. And we're still keeping that. That's correct. Because even after the Second Temple, so we have had a continuous 77777 ever since the Second Temple was built. Without Yovel? Without Yovel, right? We haven't had Yovel since the last hundred years of the first phase of the And they just started from year one when they came? Yeah, year, uh, well, 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 not when they came, because like, it was a few years, so they built the second so base of Mikdash, but from the time they built the second base of Mikdash, that became year one. But the uncertainties are, we don't know, we have uncertainties regarding those years, and, and that's why there, is, there are machloksim about Shemitah, but as they say, the halacha, we, we, we follow the Rambam's calculation. So, um, See, everything, people say something, why is everything so complicated in Judaism? And I, yeah, the truth is, everything is complicated. Even when do you have a Shemitah year? <laughs> Even that is a complicated, complicated question. Okay. Alrighty. So you all be well, everybody, and uh, take care, and uh, so rest of us.